I have to say, I think this is the, I have now a 35 year career in environmental advocacy uh, in the in the energy space. And this is the uh, time in my career where I felt the most alignment that I ever have with the utility sector on an objective. So we're very much on the same page about this and, and jointly approaching um, uh, uh, leadership in Washington. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Climate change is one of the biggest challenges of our time. And it is essential that we take aggressive action to tackle climate change while also delivering the reliable and affordable energy that powers the American economy. Electric companies, environmental and technology groups, and other experts recognize that existing technologies can get us much of the way to 100% clean energy future. Completing the work, though, will require new, carbon-free, 24-7 technologies that are affordable for customers. Our guests today are Armin Cohen, Executive Director of the Clean Air Task Force, and Jeff Ling, Director of Energy and Environmental Policy at Excel Energy. They're here today to talk about the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative and to outline how we can develop the carbon-free technologies that will help the world meet the challenge of climate change. Armin and Jeff, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Brian. Great. Jeff, let's start with you. Why was the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative formed and what are the goals for the group? Thanks, Brian. Well, first, I want to uh, extend a thank you to Edison Electric Institute for uh, this invitation and to my colleague Armin for joining me here. I think it really, we wouldn't be here with this initiative if it weren't for the staff of EEI and of Armin's group at the Clean Air Task Force, who I think have really shouldered a lot of this work. Um, So thank you. Why did we launch the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative in March and what are our goals? Um, really just sort of take you back a few years. We began working on this um, in February of last year at Excel Energy's CEO and chairman's uh, request. That's Ben Folk, uh, who is also EEI's current board chair. And Excel Energy had set a goal in December of 2018 to reduce CO2 emissions 80% from 2005 levels by 2030 and an aspiration to deliver carbon-free electricity by 2050. So we think about this transition really in two phases, right? Uh, We know we can achieve an 80% reduction with current technology. That's wind, solar, battery technology, changing coal plant operations or early closure, and importantly, a role for natural gas in balancing the power needs of the grid. So that's really consistent with, by the way, plans that we filed as a company in both Minnesota and Colorado, using existing technology to get to an 80% reduction. You look past that, however, and you think about addressing the last 20%, the last 30%, the last 10%, really depends on the electric company. Uh, We know today, I think collectively, that we'll need some forms of new generation technologies. And really what we're trying to do is to maintain clean, affordable, safe, and reliable power. When I mention reliable, really in this context, we think about 24-7, we would say in our industry, dispatchable, uh, or you can think about it as not weather dependent, right? Always available, always on carbon-free technology. So I think what's really remarkable if you look back over the last two years is there are now 28 EEI member companies. 
that have zero or net zero carbon aspirations by 2050. And I think that level of industry commitment um, really underscores the need for new technology to get all the way there. So technology we know will really drive the timeline to 100% clean energy future. And given the very long development cycles, uh, decades long for new technology, I think there's some sense among the collective members of the, the Carbon Free Technology Initiative of a common cause. And so really the goal is a call for federal policies and research design, development and demonstration dollars to match that will ensure the commercial viability of carbon free 24 seven technologies when our industry will need them. And that's gonna be in the early 2030s. So I'm really excited about this initiative. I'm grateful for the collaboration with Armand and with all of the NGOs involved. Look forward to the discussion. Great. And I see here, in addition to Clean Air Task Force and EEI and its member electric companies, other participants include the Bipartisan Policy Center, Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, ClearPath, the Great Plains Institute, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, Nuclear Energy Institute, and Third Way. So, Armin, did electric companies approach Clean Air Task Force and the other environmental groups seeking endorsement of CFTI, or did participants work together from the start to jointly identify the shared priorities? Yeah, it was really the second of those two. And the, the origins of this project really go back about two years. And I would describe it as a convergence of thinking from a group of uh, environmental organizations that focus on energy on the one hand and a group of utilities on the other hand. And it really began with a conversation directly with, with Excel Energy. Um, we compared notes um, on uh, modeling that we had done uh, regarding what's what's necessary to get to a zero carbon grid. And our modeling had surfaced uh, this kind of intractable problem that Jeff described, which is uh, making sure that uh, you have 24 seven uh, clean power without relying on um, unabated fossil energy. Um, so uh, there was a kind of a convergence of thinking at a, at, based on analysis that we had done separately. I think it was a kind of a simultaneous recognition that we needed this group of technologies to keep the grid stable, reliable, and affordable, uh, and zero carbon um, at the same time. And you know, we both identified that there really wasn't a well-organized technology innovation program at the federal level that was gonna push those technologies into the market like we successfully have done with wind and solar uh, over the last 20 years, and we needed to get busy quite uh, rapidly. So I would say it was definitely a, a kind of a joint a brainstorm uh, that uh, in a matter of a few months morphed from a brainstorm into a, a rather intensive uh, uh, process. I, I call it joint discovery. We, we, we bought the, uh, in the best uh, experts we could from around the world uh, and uh, certainly the US to help us think through where were these technologies at and uh, how could we advance, uh, advance them to commercial viability and, and lower cost. So what are some of the technologies that CFDI currently is focused on and why those technologies? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start. And uh, I uh, and Jeff, I'm sure we'll add some thoughts here. Um, so there are basically six, I would call them families of technology that we focused on. Um, and they, they differ a little bit in their characteristics, but these include, uh, first of all, just having better renewable energy, uh, by which I mean uh, renewable energy that's available more uh, uh, and more efficiently than, than current versions that we have. So those would be advanced wind and solar energy systems. Um, second, 
storage, um, particularly storage that can uh, last over, you know, days rather than just hours um, to kind of fill the gaps in wind and solar generation and also um, an enhanced uh, ability to move demand around. Um, third category uh, is, is actually a, a newer, a very new technology. Um, this really has not been demonstrated commercially and that's what we call super hot rock deep geothermal energy, which involves um, uh, injecting water deep underground into dry hot rock uh, to produce uh, steam to run a turbine. Uh, you could call that artificial geothermal, if you if you will. Um, the fourth category is, is more familiar, um, hydrogen, which is uh, on everyone's mind these days. Um, hydrogen and its derivatives like ammonia. The fifth uh, technology family was advanced nuclear energy. And here we focused both on fission uh, in its advanced forms, uh, as well as fusion energy, which is a little farther out there. Although if it gets going, could could actually beat fission to the market, we'll see. And uh, finally, uh, carbon capture utilization and storage. So that's scrubbing carbon out of uh, primarily natural gas, we assume, uh, and producing a zero carbon um, electricity stream from that. So those are the, the six areas. And I think, you know, Jeff can describe a little bit more uh, why those were our particular focus. Yeah, happy to. And, and Brian, I think what's really powerful about this initiative is, as you heard Armin talk about the six families of technologies, and I like that phrasing, Armin, uh, is that we're not looking to identify a single technology here, right? A single company or even a single type. This is really about a portfolio of options. And I think that speaks to its probability of success. Um, I think that also speaks to the, the robustness of the process that we've undertaken here, right? So we've had well over 100 individual technology experts from the uh, electric power company uh, uh, companies themselves, from the NGOs, from uh, NEI, EPRI, uh, and other groups really to come together behind what I think is, is the most comprehensive analysis of available technology that's been done in recent times. Really, we've tried to find the edges of the, of the problem and of the solution set here. And those six technologies that Armin talked about is really what we're putting forward uh, uh, collectively with no emphasis on any one technology area because we think really they all need to be advanced. Why do we do this? Uh, maybe I can speak to that. Clearly, um, the electric industry needs these technologies to get to zero or get to net zero by 2050 to achieve our own aspirations, our own goals. But as you think about the economy uh, continuing to electrify as well, right? And you look at the various models that have been done. I'll give you two examples, the Colorado Greenhouse Gas Reduction Roadmap and the Princeton Net Zero America study both show somewhere in, on the order of doubling of US electric demand by 2050. So that's a lot more work across the economy that the power sector is taking on. I would say the power sector and through it electrification are really a primary pathway to a low carbon economy. So as it takes on more work, uh, so too, as we would say in our industry, it takes on more load shapes, different types of end uses, and an even greater need for 24-7 uh, carbon generation. And some people say that we can achieve the goal of carbon-free electricity using existing technologies that we have today. Armin, could you talk a little bit about what sort of limitations might exist today for those technologies and potentially some of the land use challenges that are discussed? Yeah, let me uh, 
let me address both of those issues. So um, what do we have today to, to achieve these zero carbon goals in the electric sector? Well, we actually have a fair amount to work with. We, we have um, wind and solar, which is you know cheap and getting cheaper, um, by the way, largely due to policy drivers that drew a lot of that into the market through renewable portfolio standards and similar policies. So we, we have renewables. We have nuclear energy today, which is the, the nation's largest source of zero carbon energy. But uh, as, as you know, listeners to this podcast well know, uh, we have slowed, um, in fact, that, that the nuclear uh, capacity in the U.S. is, is shrinking um, due to retirements. And no one seems to be eager to go out and build a lot more right now. And some of that has to do, for sure, with the cost associated with those technologies today. Um, as well as the amount of time it takes uh, to get them installed, the lead time for construction and so forth. Um, so those are the two primary technologies we really have today to work with. Um, and uh, the limitations I mentioned on nuclear are sort of cost, uh, speed to market. You know, some would, some would argue uh, we could do better on safety, although, um, you know, uh, we our view is that uh, these these uh, these technologies are 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 safe enough uh, for the scale of work that needs to be done. That said, um, on the renewable side, again, we're we're blessed with uh, a lot of wind and solar capacity in the United States and and resource, and we can go a very long way. I suspect, you know, in theory, more than half of the electric grid. But there are two issues that come up. The first is. Um, that uh, to put it in you know cliche terms, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, um, or if it does, it often will blow or shine at much lower intensity than at other times. And if that was just a daily phenomenon, uh, we could probably ride through it with batteries um, if we just needed to get through four, eight, or 10 hour stretches. But what we see in most of the US is that you get weeks and even months where wind and solar output, even on a combined basis, is uh, you know maybe a third of its uh, of its peak output in the highest output months, uh, and so what's going to fill that gap? And as we did the modeling, we said, well, batteries won't really do that. The amount of battery capacity you would have to build um, to ride out weeks and months of low uh, capacity uh, production. Uh, would be cost prohibitive, um, you know, really doubling or even tripling the cost of energy, which is not going to be acceptable. So that's the first problem: is we have this, uh, we have the seasonal variation of, of of renewable output. The second problem uh, is land, as you mentioned. And uh, while um, I spent my career uh, supporting energy efficiency and renewable energy and advocating for wind projects in New England, where I live, uh, the reality is that these are very land-consuming technologies by orders of magnitude um, as compared with, say, conventional thermal generation such as nuclear or gas. Um, now, we need to build that a lot of capacity, but uh, it's, a, it's a lot of land. And um, when we get to extremely high levels of penetration of wind and solar, you see, for example, the Princeton study that um, Jeff mentioned um, you would need a land area equivalent to six states of the United States um, and roughly a 13-fold increase in the footprint on the landscape of energy facilities. And I'm ignoring transmission for a minute, uh, which is also not easy to build. And the Princeton study 
which looked at a decarbonization of the economy, says that we need like three times the amount of transmission that we have today if you go, if you really depend almost exclusively on renewable energy because of the amount of interconnection you have to do. So those are not trivial challenges. And, um, you know, I think we should push, we advocate for pushing renewables as far as they go. Um, and we, we uh, also believe that nuclear uh, can play a very valuable role. But uh, we're going to need, uh, you know, complementary technologies on the nuclear side, stuff that's less expensive and faster to build. And um, on renewables, we can go a long way, but we're going to need some other technologies. Uh, you know, for example, some of them that I mentioned, such as hydrogen and gas with carbon capture uh, to and, and long duration storage, if we can make that happen uh, to uh, to make sure that we minimizing the amount of land we're using and at the same time, keeping costs down. And Jeff, from an electric company perspective, we know that each electric company may have a different path to producing carbon-free electricity due to regional differences. And you touched on this a little bit before, but knowing this, how important is it that we have policies that let new carbon-free technologies emerge so that companies have uh, kind of a variety of tools to get to carbon-free? Right. Well, I think we've long known that uh, resource needs and timelines will vary state to state and by service territory. Um, I think that's a function of legacy grid resources, but of renewable resources, as Armin talked about. And of course, what's happened in state policy over the previous few decades. Uh, we've been fortunate in Excel Energy Service territory to have a really tremendous wind resource, which has been a big part of our clean energy transition, um, something that we call steel for fuel. Um, I think many of the EEI members, as I mentioned, share the same timeline of zero or net zero by 2050. Those interim targets, as we would refer to them, those 2030 targets um, are, are different though. And that's a function, again, of, of the factors that we talked about. Um, I think along the way, when we think about federal policy, it's really critical that we maintain uh, the existing US nuclear fleet and that we ensure the Biden administration understands that natural gas remains a really critical fuel while we are adding as much renewable energy on the grid as possible. And I think that's something I hope that the listeners uh, are hearing come through clearly that the next decade is, is quite clear. It's adding a tremendous amount of renewable energy uh, onto the system. And we're really focusing on uh, 2030 and beyond here. So public policy really does play a key role in innovation. It's not just about the R&D, D&D funding itself. Uh, maybe I could talk about, Brian, just the, the theory of change at the federal level that the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative has, has put forward. And then I do think that there's a state policy component to this as well. Um, so really kind of four areas. Re first, the research and development. Um, significant increase in funding uh, for uh, federal programs, particularly the Department of Energy, National Labs, and RPE. Uh, the U.S. Is, is woefully underspent, I would say, in R&D funding on uh, clean uh, technologies. So that's a big part of our recommendation. Um, secondly, uh, moving kind of from lab bench to demonstration, where uh, this is first-of-a-kind technologies, what are some of the policies and programs that can de-risk these first, often expensive um, uh, projects from the first of a kind uh, realm into uh, nth of a kind and into deployment, right? So for those that are proven in the demonstration phase that are um, have made it through that, uh, that phase into deployment, 
then you move into a different type of public policy, right? Things like technology neutral tax credits uh, that will be available for those technologies in the same way that the production tax credit and the investment tax credit were really effective at scaling wind and solar. Um, important to get things like direct payment and other ways of addressing uh, tax inefficiencies in the deployment phase. But as you see, what we're doing is we're pulling technologies through the maturation phase, right? From the lab bench R&D to maybe an office of commercial demonstrations to deployment through tax policy. And then ultimately for those that make it through, the, those technologies of these six families that make it through, do we have the infrastructure? Can we interconnect? Can we cite these projects? Is there transmission? Do we have a workforce? Um, is there public acceptance? Uh, and that's really, I think, in the infrastructure aspects of this. So really kind of four pillars that we view as a theory of change with this initiative. I do think likewise that there's a role for state policy. You know, uh, states is where resource planning occurs. And much of what we're talking about goes well beyond the three, four or five year uh, resource acquisition phases um, of technologies that we will build or buy. Uh, so we're really trying to look around a corner here, right, into the 2030s. So resource planning pathways that have a way to do that, I think, are really important. Secondly, at the state level, a timely approval of pilots and of demonstrations. Um, the, the regulated utility model is really not well poised to do this. And so some uh, regulatory flexibility to allow uh, pilots and demonstration projects, I think is really important. Third, states have right-of-way authority. Uh, and so using that right-of-way authority for transmission or for project siting, I think is important. And finally, matching dollars, right? A lot of these RD, D and D uh, dollars will require some level of match. Uh, hopefully that's not a 50-50 match, but maybe more like an 80-20 match, which is something we've put forward in this initiative, but probably a role for states in pulling down federal dollars. So all of that, I would say, is uh, to affect uh, policy flexibility. 2030 is not that far away, particularly when you think about 20-year resource planning. So we need to find a way to move this from important but not urgent to the important and urgent quadrant, and policy is a key way to do that. President Biden's budget request for fiscal year 2022 includes a sizable increase in funding for the Department of Energy, and Energy Secretary Granholm recently was on Capitol Hill discussing the proposal with key lawmakers. So, Armin, when we're talking about significant levels of funding, what, what level of funding is CFTI advocating for? Yeah, in the short term, we're looking for roughly a uh, doubling uh, of funding uh, for innovation, uh, you know, uh, compared to current levels, and I haven't done a direct comparison with the administration's, you know, emerging proposals, which are which are in progress. But but we're roughly talking about a doubling, and you know, possibly in the latter part of the decade, as much of a tri as much of uh, as a tripling. Um, so it's a it's a significant increase. But I would point out that uh, you know ultimately the um, the levels that we're talking about uh, are. Uh, you know, today we're at about nine billion total um, from all the agencies on clean energy innovation. And while that sounds like a lot of money, if we compare it to investment in R D and D in the Defense Department, you've got many times that a sixty-six billion dollar dollar annual spend, and health is about forty billion. So, uh, you know, doubling our current levels is significant, but uh, given the strategic importance of this sector. 
uh, you know, uh, doubling is, is, uh, it seems quite reasonable and, and in line with national priorities. And are CFTI members working together to educate members of Congress on some of these priority issues? Oh yeah, very, very much so. We're very tightly coordinated. Um, you know, this is a truly joint effort and, uh, uh, you know, jointly conceived and we're going to be jointly advocating. We have very close uh, uh, working uh, teams uh, that are uh, targeting both uh, uh, members on uh, in, in Capitol Hill as well as uh, administration. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're very unified on this. I, I have to say, I think this is the I have now a 35 year career in environmental advocacy uh, in the in the energy space. And this is the uh, time in my career where I felt the most alignment that I ever have with the utility sector on an objective. So we're very much on the same page about this and and jointly approaching um, uh, uh, leadership in Washington. And how impactful is that when you have environmental leaders and electric companies not just having shared visions for the big goals, but here it sounds like you're you're really getting into some of the detailed policy proposals and that's that's where you're going and talking to members of Congress about. Yeah, it's quite has. I think it, it turns heads quite a bit when you have a utility uh, executive walk in the door with an environmental organization. It, it just it. Uh, I think politicians like it when when there's agreement and they don't have to adjudicate a dispute. Uh, but uh, but seriously, I, I think that uh, this is this is unique. I think it it uh, bodes well for the success. I think what's you know so interesting going back to Jeff's point um, about you know the, the amount of number of companies that have committed like Excel to very aggressive climate goals, things have happened very rapidly. I mean, this has changed very rapidly in the last uh, few years. We're just in a very different world now. And so I, I think that we really have surpassed the issue of whether we need to decarbonize to how. And frankly, once you've passed that first hurdle, the how becomes actually a lot easier to discuss because it's really about mechanics and about economics. Uh, it's really not about um, philosophy. And uh, so anyway, I think I think the uni unification on goals, as well as the details, um, are, are really important because uh, it's always easier for a member of Congress to put their stamp on something that has already uh, multi-sector support um, than to have to get in and figure out, um, you know, uh, reconcile different points of view. And Jeff, as you look toward the future, how big a priority is making sure that you're able to do this in a way that keeps electricity affordable for your customers? I imagine a lot of your regulators are looking at that closely at the state level. Well, Brian, I think affordability and reliability are the two minimum table stakes in all this. Uh, certainly our economic regulators are, are going to uh, be watching that with a keen eye. And if the technology does not arrive, right, and we can't maintain this transition affordably and reliably, uh, we'll need more time. Uh, so those are two things that we, we really cannot compromise. Um, I, think, I think the opportunity is here for the U.S. to be a leader. Uh, the U.S. has historically not been a leader in RD, D&D. Uh, you know, there are 13 nations who invest more than we do relative to the size of their economies. Uh, the numbers that Armin shared with you, uh, I think, are, are pretty reasonable given the scope of the problem. A tripling of DOE's budget on carbon-free 24-7 technologies really does begin to put this on par with other uh, national uh, critical national uh, missions. And so I also want to point out, though, too, this is, is, this is not a, a one-time initiative. This is an annual initiative, right, because the federal government appropriates dollars annually. And so this is something that we really need to keep up the drumbeat on 
through the next decade. So it sounds as though CFTI is not just a, a one-year initiative. It's something where you all are looking at the long-term here. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I mean, look, the technology area is extremely dynamic. Um, there are new ideas and new technologies emerging almost weekly. Uh, so, and also, I think we need to monitor what's working and what's not. Um, the worst thing you can do is create a federal program that's just, you know, on eternal life support. Um, this is meant to be a very dynamic process. Uh, you know, we we hope to work with the DOE and Congress to build in uh, metrics of success um, and and have. Uh, in the design of these programs, uh, we've made recommendations for making sure that uh, the technologies that um, are put forward are are tested and that, that failures are discarded quickly, that we learn from our failures quickly. But that's a dynamic process and, and it will, it will as, uh, as Jeff said, something that's going to be uh, kind of almost require annual revisiting. And now that President Biden has released his proposed budget request and there are appropriations hearings that are taking place on the Hill. What happens next like for folks who want to keep an eye on this? What should we be looking for? So, Brian, I think there's a lot of hard work ahead. I think the uh, t- two things. First, we have to make sure that the uh, we inform the president's final budget that the, the spending level matches the need, matches the, the magnitude of the problem, right? We know that uh, technology is going to drive the timeline to 100% carbon-free energy. So, um, the, the spending level for the RDD and D needs to match that. And likewise, the commitment within federal agencies, within DOE, uh, newly created agencies, and the national lab. So I think, firstly, we need to uh, inform the president's final budget to make sure that this, the uh, magnitude of spending is, is on par with the need. And secondly, then um, working with members of Congress and with appropriators and congressional appropriations committees to make sure that those dollars are then allocated uh, specifically uh, to these technology areas. And I think that's really gonna take focus. It's gonna take commitment and, and focus long-term over the next decade to say, we, um, we think a long-term research and demonstration agenda on these technologies is needed not just for the power sector, but for the economy to reach um, the US's commitment under the Paris Agreement. So. Uh, I think we've got to get the, the the level of spending right in the president's final budget and then uh, ongoing work, as I mentioned, and annual work, uh, working with appropriators. Great. Sir, anything you want to add, Armand? Nope, I'm I'm good. I think uh, it's an exciting, uh, exciting partnership. Uh, I want to thank EEI and the member companies and, and Excel uh, played a particularly uh, leading role in all of this uh, for moving this ball forward. I, I really am very hopeful uh, about the next decade of uh, of technology innovation in the space, which is really the essential ingredient in solving climate change. Uh, it's one thing to have hearts and minds, but in the end, it's really about real machines uh, operating at zero emissions, not just in the power sector, but transport and industry. Uh, and I think this really puts us on that path. Great. And for those listening, if you're interested in learning more about some of the key technology areas they're looking at, you can go to carbonfreetech.org to learn more. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Armin. Bye-bye. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.